Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How was your Christmas and, and New Year? It was excellent. It's always nice to spend uh, this time of year back in Australia. Things get things get sleepy. I know for folks in the Northern Hemisphere, it feels strange to hear of Christmas that's hot, but growing up with it, it just feels strange to me having anything other than that. Are you still in Australia? Yeah, this is the last couple of days. I'm just about to fly back. Well, uh, I hope you had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. It has been uh, several weeks since we recorded, so uh, it, it's good to be back, and uh, let's get to it. It sounds like a plan. Our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent, as they do every week. Whether you'd like to build a personal blog, a business site, or both, creating your website on WordPress.com helps others find you, remember you, and connect with you. You don't need experience. They guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side to get your site up and running. This is, by the, by the way, why I like WordPress.com. WordPress, like WordPress, I use WordPress, and, and if you run it yourself, you have like there's way more stuff you can do. But if you But if you start here, it's all taken care of, and then in the future, you can easily move to your own setup and do all kinds of stuff um you know i, I i'm I, i'm a big wordpress advocate you don't need to you don't need to hear me going on about it but their customer support team is made up of wordpress experts eager to help you get the most from your site and they're available to help 24 hours a day monday through friday and weekends plans start at just four dollars a month and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan go to wordpress.com slash exponent to get 15 percent off your website today that's wordpress.com slash Exponent. Our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. Indeed. Awesome. So this week was uh, – I had an interesting challenge with my article this week. I, I had this idea of – I mean, there's been this this bug, as I'm sure everyone has heard about this point, with processors. And I've always been fascinated with processors. Like, they were one of the things, like, when I was first really getting into technology back in the, uh, you know, in the, in the 90s. And this was a time when just – processors were improving by weeks mm. like every few months a new version would come out or every year or whatever and it was the performance was so much better than what came before and it was also sort of like the you know like Anon Tech back in the day when it first started or or John Stokes on Ars Technica like getting into mm. the nitty gritty of like how these things worked was always so fascinating to me and so like there's some aspect of this week is like me going back to like my my high school self and like nerding out on like on like how this stuff works and, and I'm like well okay one this is really cool and interesting two you know it, how how can normal people uh, I hate using that normal people term but how can people who who have no reason to understand how processor works mm. like what's a way to explain what's going on here and then I kind of like well there's an interesting sort of analogy here about you know unforeseen consequences and decisions made in the past that impact the future I'm like oh that'd be kind of a cool analogy to flesh out uh, I started writing this article I got it was such a challenge albeit a fun challenge to explain I got to the end I'm like well this is an interesting analogy but I don't have time for it so I kind of <laughs> daily update got much more into it this week sort of that aspect of it but mm. yeah it was very much sort of like a, a high school me sort of article in some respects i remember those days very well as well uh the the risk versus cisc battles and watching intel and amd duke it out on on one side and then ibm and motorola on the other but uh it, it, the article i enjoyed it but it did remind me so we both went to business school and it did remind me of the odd case discussion where sometimes what happens is well typically what happens is your case discussion there's a third of the there's a third where it's like set up and then there's a third of discussion of what to do and then there's a third of the conversation that's takeaways and sometimes what happens is with these complicated cases 
it ends up being like two thirds to three quarters of the case ends up being a discussion around the setup and it just the explanation required to, to let people who otherwise don't understand about processes understand what's going on. So you're all on the same page. It did remind me a little bit of one of those conversations. I know because the, the particular challenge I took here, it wasn't just explaining the bug, but the analogy that I wanted to make depended mm-hmm. on like a deeper explanation. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got myself stuck in a little bit of a catch 22, but I'm going to, I'm going to try to go over it real quick and, and and uh, famous last words, but uh, kind of like what's going on here, just because I, I really do think it's a fascinating framing device to think about not just this issue, but sort of like issues surrounding technology generally, ones that we've spent 135 episodes mm. getting into because it like the analogy is it's not like a stretched analogy. Like it really is, I think, a a manifestation of a lot of the stuff that we talk about. No, I agree. Um, but let's 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 establish a baseline for everybody. So the main thing to understand about processors is, and I kind of got this: like processors are incredibly fast. They're unbelievably fast. They're unfathomably fast. But they're but they really do operate on basically ones and zeros because the the whole concept of how a processor works is you have these basically tiny, <laughs> infinitesimally small electrical switches that are either on or they're off. And and there's no like until we have quantum computers that can be in multiple states, we are stuck with this sort of binary, a, a, a term that you use in terms of computers. And and you, there's all these sort of like sayings that have risen from computers that I think people don't realize are actually like literal sayings. Like it's all mm. ones and zeros. I use this in the article, mm. right? Or or it's a you know binary decision making. Like this is this is what computers are like. They're 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 super basic. They're just basic in in a really really sort of fast fast way. And so what happens is you end up having this sort of speed mismatch because there's two parts there's two at a high level two parts one is the sort of computation part the ones and zeros and that's really 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 fast the other part is actually getting all the all the stuff that needs to be computed and it has to be translated into a into into ones and zeros basically so so it can be figured out and so there's a multi-step process from when you actually write computer code and and a sort of uh i think we mentioned this a uh, uh, in another podcast this idea that the one of the biggest trends in computing generally is towards more and more abstraction, where mm-hmm. it used to be like way back in the day, you would actually write in ones and zeros for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that, that's maybe, a, it, but, but then you go up a little bit to like uh, machine language. Machine language is where you're using like these three letter codes that the processor can understand, mm-hmm. and, and the processor itself will translate those into ones and zeros. But but you had to, it, the, the, the amount of knowledge that had to be sort of in your head and your understanding about this was you, you basically had to speak another language, and it wasn't like a human language. It was, it was literally called machine language. And then you get a, a, a higher level. And I'm, I'm skipping over sort of intervening steps, but the next level is sort of like C type languages where you, it was more verbose, but you still had to do a lot of stuff manually to man- manage memory manually. You had to, you had to put stuff in order manually. And it's kind of gone up the stack where today the, you know, what's a big thing about Swift, for example, or what's heard about Swift for Apple? Well, one of the big things about Swift is the, the previous Apple language called Objective-C was built on C. You had to do a lot of this manual stuff, like manage memory, for example. Now, the idea is you shouldn't have to worry about that. We have computers. Computers are smart. They can handle stuff like that. But that actually, but that sort of thing has to be built in at the foundation of, of these languages. And Swift is a much safer language, is what it's known as, because a lot of that manual management of the processor and of memory all sort of stuff is handled by the computer itself, by the compiler, by, by, by just whatever, just handled by the computer itself. Mm. And, and the idea is you, it's less 
likely that you're going to make devastating mistakes. Uh, devastating mistakes being where data gets leaked or or there be really problematic bugs. You might still have like the normal bugs where your your program crashes, but there's like different types of bugs. So it's it's a much safer language. And and you have things like like scripting languages where they're very verbose and you can kind of you can read like a program and really understand what's going on because it's much more expressive and we've moved towards a much more human sort of articulation of what a program should do and away from a machine-centric one. and all, But that translation still has to happen in mm-hmm. there. And that translation more and more is done by computers. And this idea of, of abstraction, I mean, because the problem is all that translation going from sort of human language to machine language is really slow. It takes time. But as processors got really fast, we sort of had extra cycles. We had time to do it. And this paid off in other ways where the humans could be so much more productive if they could use sort of human ways of thinking and let the computer do the translation and that's that's been an ongoing that's been the story of sort of computing in many respects for for decades yeah i mean you you mentioned it as we kind of did it in ones and zeros we like way back when and it's kind of crazy to think that how far we've come in 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 a relatively short period like in a human lifetime effectively that people were programming on punch cards and that was that was effectively a, a a physical representation of ones and zeros, and now we have these processes where those those switches are so tiny that obviously you can't see them. There are there are millions and millions of them on on one of these processes. I would say you're absolutely right about the speed, but the other thing you give up is a degree of control. If you are down programming at that lang- level of language, and I had to do this a bit uh, in my undergrad, like you have a degree of control over what gets written where uh, and and how things are processed that you give up when you move up the stack into these more abstract languages. Um, and it makes it easier to program and more effective, particularly as you get into more complicated things, but you give up speed. But there is one important thing that you rely on, and that is that everything underneath you has been done correctly. And I think that's what kind of drives it, what, what you wrote about this week, which is it, it the, the the compiler or the, the translator between the code that you're writing right now, and you still have to take it all the way down to ones and zeros. It still needs to pass through all those layers to get there because that's how these processes speak. If, if the if the translation, which uh, as is always the case, has been done by a human somewhere, whether in software or in hardware, is incorrect, then you're going to have problems as it comes down the stack. And you give up, you, you gain many things by having this abstraction uh, in terms of how you get to code and be able to be much more efficient and you're not managing memory and so on. But yeah, you give up control and that it, it, you give up speed, but you can give up other things as well. You're right, because you have this foundation. If there is an issue, a bug in this foundation, it's going to affect everything. And and this is ca- kind of what's going on here. We'll get into specifics in a moment. But the other thing to remember, though, is there's a trade-off, which is humans are more likely to make mistakes than computers are, right? Mm. So, so if you are actually dealing in the muck, like the chance of a it's kind of like a marginal versus fixed sort of thing, right? The the marginal opportunity to make a mistake is massively larger if you're down the low level, but the cost of a fixed mistake, if that makes sense, where it's oh, it's yeah. baked in, is like is much more devastating. And this is yep. kind of a this is literally a fixed mistake because we're talking about the actual hardware and in the way that a processor is is designed mm. and built. Uh, so the the difference is interesting because the 
the outcome's more devastating, even if in the interim, this level of abstraction has made computers much safer, has made data protection much better. Uh, so, But if it goes wrong, it goes really, really wrong. Well, yeah. And I mean, asking every programmer in the world to recreate everything underneath would actually be a waste of resources. And ideally, given the fact you know it's fixed, you have a lot of people with a lot of eyes focused on making sure everything underneath is right. But we're human and we get things wrong. And this one seems to have slipped past. I want to make one more point though before we move on. This sure. this idea of abstraction, I think, is extendable to so so many other mm. things. I, I wrote about this um, in a sure podcast about it kind of a year ago when I, w- I wrote that article about Alexa being Amazon's operating system. And mm. I got into this idea of operating systems and what does it mean to sort of be the core foundational aspect of something and what is the foundation has moved up and up the stack over time. It mm. used to be, you're right, people would be down in the muck actually telling the process directly what to do in, 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 for all intents and purposes. Then it moved up and we had kind of the personal computer. One of the foundational aspects of that was having the operating system as a middle layer that abstracted that away. Mm-hmm. And when you wrote programs, you would write programs to the operating system, not to what was underneath it. And then you had a layer going up with the web where you were writing you know, basically the effective operating system was Google, not because Google had an API that you were writing to, but what actually mattered was attention and getting in distribution and getting mm-hmm. in front of people. And and the layer that mattered there was Google. Is that a traditional operating system? Well, no, of course not. But but the idea of it being the foundational layer that you build on, and that now this idea of Facebook. And so Facebook, for example, just like, like literally like minutes ago, mm-hmm. has announced this newsfeed change, which I'm, I suspect we'll talk about very soon. But the idea that there is there is something foundational that is shifting and it affects everyone sitting on top of it and this and that doesn't the concept is still the same but what we've done broadly is not just from programming we've abstracted more and more from entire ecosystems and the way all this stuff works we've continually abstracted gone up the stack over time and it's it's a valuable thing to do it i mean it has opened up the like scripting languages for example that's opened up the opportunity for people to uh, utilize computers uh, like a, a number of people to utilize computers that previously wouldn't be able to and the same with facebook and you think about all these things and they make them more accessible but they do come with a series of trade-offs which isn't surprising for us to say. <laughs> it's not, it's, yeah, for sure. And it's not just like more people can do it. It's the people who could do the other way, could do the manual way. They, they're freed up to do other, other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It, so it's not just like more people can be developers, although that's certainly a, an outcome of this increased abstraction. It's that the people who are, who are knowledgeable and skilled enough to do that sort of low level work are freed up to do other stuff and which could be, you know, amazingly and has been amazingly impactful. Like, and this is, believe me, there is no going back nor should we want to go back. No one wants to go back to a world where we're, we're running on punch cards. Like there's so many gains that have come from increased abstraction, but the, the point is to establish there has been this level of abstraction, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and it's always easy to focus on the losses. We're really good at seeing what we've lost as opposed to all the things we've gained. And yeah, we have now gotten 10 minutes without actually mm-hmm. getting to the issue at hand. And this is how I managed to write an article that was uh, mm-hmm. three quarters, uh, just explaining what's going on. <laughs> Anyhow, so the, the point to take away is computers are really fast, but they're not very smart. They just do sort of this this ones and zeros thing. And so the, you have this, this sort of core trade-off with a processor is you have this execution unit that's really fast. And the more executions you can do at once, the better, because the, the longer you can 
make what's called the pipeline, the, 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 the faster you can run. The problem is actually getting the data there and you have to get that data from memory. And memory like it seems really fast and like you get an SSD while it's so much faster than a spinning disk drive, but like all relative to the speed of a processor, it's, it's unbelievably slow. Like it's crazy slow. Like I, I put this chart that, that I think is really eye opening in this article where uh, if a, if a CPU runs, right, it, it runs in 0.3 nanoseconds about, but if you tr- change that to one second, like a CPU cycle, so two gigahertz CPU runs like 2 billion times a second, right? If it actually ran, one cycle was one second, then to get memory from cache, which is like kind of memory that's attached to the CPUs right there, would take three seconds. So it takes three times as long as one cycle to go get memory, right? But you compare that to main memory, like your RAM, which people are probably most familiar with when it comes to talking about memory, it takes six minutes. So imagine that that's the speed mismatch here. To go to regular memory and, and to get something takes six minutes. To go to your hard drive, even if you have a, one of those fancy SSDs, it takes like two days. And that's the fastest <laughs> SSD in the world. So, so to, again, the point is not to understand how computers work. It's to understand there's this massive speed mismatch mm. in, inside your computer, which is getting stuff from memory is really – and getting translated in the way the CPU can use is really slow. And actually doing stuff is incredibly fast. And mm. what that means is doing stuff is is basically free. So we've – all this stuff that we've done, like the uh, – the computer's doing all this more work, it's because they're so fast, might as well give them more work. Like they're otherwise your computer in even no matter how hard you're working, most of the time is doing nothing. It's just sitting there waiting for you to do something. It, it's interesting. The memory model is almost like a waterfall or a triage. And the more likely to use it, the closer it gets to the processor. And these things, you, when, that, when that pipeline that you talked about, when the pipeline is empty, that's when you start taking performance hits. And one of the ways in which uh, processor designers have worked around uh worked around this issue is exactly what you just said is like well we might as well just keep going so hmm, i wonder if we can guess what the user's about to do so it just starts guessing what might come next and putting that in the pipeline and the only problem with that is as is always the case with humans i mean even in some instances we can be good at predicting but we're never perfect at predicting what's about to happen right yeah and it's not even waiting what the user is going to do because this is so fast like this is operating at it's like a completely Mm. different universe Mm. from like Mm -hmm. what the user is doing right i mean a user relative to going to hard disk is like years right so the computer is just sitting imagine just sitting around for years waiting for someone to tell you to do something that's what computers are doing like we're within like Within like these unbelievably fast speeds, but yeah, your your point is exactly right. If if the cost is to get stuff from memory, then wouldn't it be better to get stuff from memory ahead of time that you might need? And oh, I looked down. If you do A, then do B. If you do B, then do C. What a computer will basically do is. If so, does if A then B, but A depends on getting some information, so it has to sit around and wait, right? If you did it linearly, and this is the way processors sort of used to work in in very slow processes, like like uh, will still work this way, it has to wait around for the answer to A. If A is yes, then it will go to B. Then it does the B order, right? The problem is this would take for freaking ever because you have to keep getting information. That's the real delay. So what a computer will do is it will. Look at if A, then B. It will wait for the answer to A, but it will go ahead and pre-compute if B, then C, because if the answer is B, then 
I'm just sitting around. I might as well work ahead of time. It will do this well, well, well. It's called speculative execution. It will do this well down these sort of chains where it's figuring out all the answers. And what happens is, is if it actually is A, then boom, it instantly has like the rest of it all figured out. And if it's not A, it's like, oh, oh well, and it throws it all away. And it doesn't really cost anything to throw it away because it wouldn't be doing anything otherwise. So, so, and this is called speculative execution. It's sort of the, it's been integral to how processors have worked for uh, uh, several decades now. And it's because what happened was there's fundamental physics limitations to just doing straight line execution. Mm. And it was actually much more possible to do multiple pipelines, like parallel execution. And so if we can do a bunch of stuff at the same time, let's just pre-do a bunch of stuff. And then presuming we guess right the majority of the time, which computers do, it the effective speed will be so much faster because we've basically paralyzed stuff parallelize stuff that should be linear, but we've sort of guessed it ahead of time. Yeah. So basically the, the bug here is, is, and it's, and here's the weird thing, like <laughs> it, well, we'll get to whether it's a bug or not. What happens is, is the computer does this speculative execution and mm. sometimes B and C or actually for this bug, it's more like C and D because it has to be a couple steps down the chain. The details aren't, we're already way much of the details, but the data needed to compute C and D, for example, some of that data might be protected memory that you don't have access to. And and what actually is the case is that if A is like checking, does this user have access to this data? And the answer we know would be no, but be, the computer doesn't know that yet. Computers are dumb. Like they, 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 don't, they don't necessarily know this. And so what happens is it will fetch that memory and execute on it, on this data that you're not supposed to have. And then you get to A, and then it says, oh, not supposed to have, have, have access. And what it does is it throws it away. And so that should be the end of it, right? The problem is in the process of getting that data, it loaded that data into that the, the cache, the closest memory to the computer. And you can basically ping cache for all effects and purposes. And if one one address or one bit of data responds faster than anything else, you know that that data is in cache. And so it, it's this really tricky sort of thing where, oh, they the computer must have loaded th- this data because it's responding really quickly. How might the computer have loaded that data? Well, because it was speculatively presuming it needed that data. And no, it ended up throwing it away. But there's like trace side effects that result from it being there. And basically what you can do, is, and this it's super laborious. You go through and you're basically guessing address spaces and pinging cache and saying, oh, is something there or something not there? And it's like, why would you – like that sounds – it sounds like that would take ages. Remember, computers are insanely fast. So they can do this at at remarkably, relatively speaking, high speeds. And you can end up basically capturing all sorts of memory on the computer that you're not supposed to have access to. Now, what's tricky is – is it a bug? Is it not a bug? The, the meltdown is much closer to a bug because the processor is supposed to manage who has access to that memory and who doesn't. And basically on Intel processors and I and some earlier Apple processors, it doesn't check soon enough for all intents and purposes it's called a race condition where it, the the it, it, it's not executing in the, in the proper order whereas amd and and most other arm processors are correctly handle that in that they they cut off access before you're supposed to get to it uh it, again the details are, are are the takeaway is that meltdown's closer to a bug specter is different because what specter basically is is you're priming the pump because remember these processes are guessing and so you're basically priming the processor to guess incorrectly such that when another user accesses that same sort of routine, 
it will automatically guess the wrong thing and you, and you you're ready for it and you kind of track what's happening and what's so devious about that is it's not a bug it's it's not a bug like it is inherent to how speculative execution is done and that's what makes specter particularly sort of scaring it's like this is it's working as designed it's worth considering the context in which this all kind of happened. And this was a process of race between Intel and AMD, and they're all trying to get ahead. And obviously, they're looking for any way in which to get performance to, 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 to go forward and, and leapfrog the other. But it's also the context of we were in a different paradigm. We were in a paradigm of personal computers. And it was, and while all the operating systems, or, well, maybe not Mac OS, but Unix and Windows were supported multiple users on the computer, really these processes were being used in a personal environment where there was typically only one person on them at a time, not always, but typically. And in, in that environment, this, this bug probably isn't that big a deal. But you fast forward now and you think about how these, these processes are being used in cloud environments, which is something completely unforeseen back then. And uh, it's, it's a, a lot more troublesome. It's a really good point. There is a personal computer angle um, that involves JavaScript, which I, is kind of maybe worth mentioning in a little mm-hmm. bit. But I think your broader point is is it's it's can't be overstated. This idea that these processors, even the ones like Intel Xeon or whatever, that are built for data centers, they are they are modified for data centers, right? Mm. The, the core architecture arose from personal computers, and the whole i the whole concept of Intel, you know, people talk about, oh, ARM coming along, being cheaper and and disrupting Intel. The reality is that Intel was the initial disruptor. And this idea that Intel was the consumer guy coming in with less high quality stuff, but at much lower cost and much higher volume, that's actually the way that this played out. It used to be that servers were running on specialized specialized hardware. And I don't know enough, to be honest. I've always kind of been focused on the sort of Intel, AMD, you know, sort of area. I don't know enough about old school, like Spark hardware and like that to, to know if they would have had these sort of bugs. I would imagine they would have because speculative execution is just kind of a thing. But the broader point that these at the at the heart of these is consumer hardware is a really interesting one that I think people kind of forget about when they think about, you know, cloud cloud infrastructure. I, I mean this is uh I mean and I, I understand why you focused on it and I uh, this this uh, this um process of bug and the broader point around how uh, you you build something that's right for the time and then the assumptions start to change but perhaps everything else lying underneath does not and in, in no better instance is that than hardware because once it's built it's built uh, and then you have all the infrastructure going into building the processes and, and everything else that relies on top of it and uh, we've talked about it a lot in the context of society but it's so fun or so interesting to see this happen in the context context in a much like a, a much lower level of nesting which is inside of processes and on top of software it's just it's the same version of the thing that we've been talking about just in a very different context yeah because what happened was you know you had this really expensive hardware in data centers and i can't remember who did it first i want to say it was google but i'm i'm not totally sure on that so if i'm wrong uh i i apologize but this i but the general the, the broader point is the idea of taking all this they started sort of putting like consumers consumer hardware 
in data centers, and it's like, oh, it's less reliable. It's not going to handle it. Well, that's fine. If it breaks, we'll just throw in another one. And building mm. this sort of like mass sort of like parallelism and resiliency where you change from this presumption where stuff has to work all the time to stuff is going to break. When you're running hundreds of millions of, of, of processors, they're going to break. The stuff's going to like stuff just happens at the end of the day. And this is kind of sort of the, the core thing with computers that people forget about at the end of the day, everything is analog, right? You still have to deal with the physical world at some point. Mm-hmm. Like there's this, there's this, there's this computer bug. It's called like rock hammer or something like that, where basically the idea is you slam memory with like a ton of, ton of calls and then you switch one thing and there's kind of like an image retention sort of effect. And you can read that image. Like at some point you're dealing with the analog world, which means you're going to be able to like, there's going to be inherent sort of like, it's not going to be perfect. There's going to be some sort of organic aspect to it. It's not mm. all – when you say all ones and zeros, you think, oh, it's all digital and you can get perfect copies and stuff. When you're dealing with actual physical items, as you must do when it comes to processing, there are – it's a physical product. It's going to break down. It's going to wear down. There's going to be mistakes that happen. And what sort of Google – and again, I think it was Google first, but if not, well, I apologize. But Well, you know, actually, you're reminding me as you're talking. I, th- I think watching this in the late 90s, it was the, – the, the place where it seemed to gather steam first was in the supercomputers. Like all the people would compete to see who had the best supercomputer and it used to be it was specialized hardware. And then these universities started to throw these clusters together of traditional PCs and that's where people started to realize, oh, in terms of a bang for the buck type thing, you can actually like you can you can win on a you can win the flops per dollar race by like just putting a whole bunch of Pentiums together and, and letting it loose. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, and, and you and you're bringing to bear not just this point that I've been talking about, where you know actually better to have a lot of semi-reliable stuff and then just build a system that's resilient on top of it mm. as opposed to having a few sort of really expensive things that will break eventually, but also this this bit where consumer processors had the massive sort of volume and scale advantage mm. that they were selling to consumers. So Intel processors were just way cheaper than than sort of specialized hardware would have been. And it made much more economic sense to leverage that that those economies of scale. And this this bit about how consumer bleeds into enterprise, that's a theme that we've also touched on again mm. and again, where it used to be enterprise led the way, but more and more it's stuff starts in consumer and then goes to enterprise because the scale in consumer is so much greater that you can gain sort of like you, you can iterate so much faster and you can get so much cheaper that you can end up doing things on the other side that used to require specialized hardware and you just kind of brute force it. Like in this, this the other thing that's sort of another sort of trend is moving towards sort of like brute forcing things. One of my examples, one of my favorite examples of how brute forcing works is, is Google Maps where you had this idea where wouldn't it be interesting to get sort of, you know, better data on streets and understand where storefronts are on sort of stuff. And what Google did is they literally drove a car on every road in the world. <laughs> mm. like, and it's like that kind of sounds ridiculous, but but it actually turns out that you the way you can scale that up it, economically speaking it makes more sense than like building some sort of like trying to do all these deals and specialized stuff and like and and figure out how to get this access just brute force it and once you brute force it then you sort of have just a massive amount of data and you take all that data and then you start doing interesting things with it and this is kind of like with artificial intelligence was happening the idea of artificial intelligence is you have this sort of like general ai that can just figure stuff out right and it, and it thinks like a human and what 
the sort of artificial intelligence that's actually making a difference today is the, you know, is machine learning. And mm. the, the concept there is really about just having overwhelming amounts of data. It, it's, it's sort of going in the opposite direction. Instead of starting with someone smart and then figuring out a situation as you encounter it, just inundate the the process with all kinds of information such that they can start to pick out patterns and figure it out from the overall amount of data. So like Google's self-driving car, it's not really about anticipating the environment and making decisions. It's inputting into the car all kinds of data. Like so like the like where they drive in like Mountain View, it has every bit of every road in the computer system, like every sign, every crosswalk, in a much more detailed, specific way than even Google Street View does. And it's like, and you think, well, are they really going to do that for the entire world? It's like, well, they already mm-hmm. did it once. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, it's like flipping the entire concept on its head where you start with massive volumes and then you distill order from that volume as opposed to sort of imposing order from the top. And it's had a funny kind of effect too, because it's it, 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 in the context of this conversation, we've almost come full circle uh, in terms of computing. We started off in a very centralized way where everything was uh, living on mainframes, and then the PC era kind of emerged, and you know it, it, it decentralized a lot. But it's 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 kind of crazy that we've come full circle. That a lot of this processing is happening in a centralized way again. Like the whole notion of cloud is going back to the client server model. And it's 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 nuts to me how we've moved, we, we've come full circle, but the things underlying it, we've gone from highly specialized hardware that sits underneath some of those mainframes to now uh, decentralizing and all these, uh, the, the Pentium processors and the AMD processors that were on every desktop. And now we're coming back the other direction, but we're taking those processors that were so, uh, that were so performance effective per dollar and we're putting those inside this in the servers in the mainframes and whatever like and they're being hosted by amazon and google and so on and we're going back there to do all the work and it's kind of crazy this loop that's happened but how the underlying the underlying infrastructure that's driving it has changed and it's an important takeaway generally i think this idea that you get so much more effectiveness and efficiency and and impact by taking a sort of uh, <laughs> just a massive, overwhelming approach to stuff, you know what I mean? As opposed to trying to like centrally figure out everything, I, I'm mm. I'm just really struck by this the this artificial intelligence idea where we still haven't figured out the central planner sort of approach to artificial intelligence where you have this intelligent agent at the middle that can encounter any environment and can handle it. Like that's as far off as it's ever been. And, but this all alternative model what the real breakthrough is just changing our conception of our conceptual mm. framework of what artificial intelligence might be like the actual machine learning all this stuff it's incredibly impactful and it's doing stuff that we never thought was possible but it's doing it in a very different way than we thought artificial intelligence might do stuff years ago and this is i i think this drives at one of the other big points for me and it's funny because it applies at that level and it applies at the processor level too which is just how terrible human beings are at predicting the future and i think this is something i've been internalizing elsewhere in my life in terms of like how i thought things were going to work out and being back in australia i've been reflecting on this but but like the processor bug is 
is is built on prediction like the the or, or the flaw is is it's a it's a function of prediction and 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 getting it wrong but it's also the case that when you think about for example how we thought ai would emerge this centralized version versus the decentralized version that or, or, has actually come along. We were terrible at predicting that. And, and the point around central versus decentralized planning, like the reason capitalism works, the reason that decentralization works is because we are so bad at predicting. And it's actually better to let a thousand things spring up and, and let it compete out in the real world and the best one to win, as opposed to the smart guy sitting up in the ivory tower ordaining this is the way it's going to be. And, and so for me, like how, how poor we are at prediction, how poor I am at predicting things and it's it and and like going off and doing and letting a thousand flowers bloom is actually oftentimes a better approach. It's it's so true. And you know, something that is striking about this is you kind of think back. It's like if we could go back and do things differently, would we do it differently? And you know, certainly I think there'd be like core sort of like architectural changes to preempt this sort of bug if we could go back and do it. But one, uh no one anticipated it. And two, given like it's so easy to look backwards and when you look backwards everything is in order and and you Mm. can see like it's all decided it's all sort of set in stone you can say oh actually you should have turned left here you should have turned right there but when you look forward it's not like that at all it's the exact opposite and things will happen the way they happen it's it's really critical to take it to keep in mind how different the view is looking backwards versus Mm. looking forward and and the the tempting thing is to look back and say oh this is how it went out how it went down it should have gone down this way Mm. but that's completely and utterly it's well one it's not just useless looking forward because everything there's so many unknowns and so many things are Mm. are in in action and if something happens in one place that changes something's going to happen somewhere else and all those all that uncertainty has already been established looking backwards right looking forward it's still completely open. Mm. But also, you can't go back, and this is why whenever you look back at past decisions or past things that were done, you have to put yourself, to the extent as possible, in the mindset of the people at that time. And not just think about, yes, there was a process to race, and they want to be faster and figure it out, but also, no one knew where this was going, but people, it was very clear and apparent that making processors faster made things better. They, they, they made possible things that couldn't be done before. And there's all sorts of gains that have come from faster processors and computers and all these sorts of things. And, and I, for one, am pretty confident in, in, in thinking that, you know, yes, this is a bad bug and we're going to have to deal with it. And it has a particular impact on on cloud services because the, the, we kind of skirted over this, but the issue with cloud services is multiple people are using the same processor, mm. right? It's more abstraction. This is another layer of abstraction. Mm-hmm. You are literally when you when you sign when you go to a cloud service, you can get your own server, but that server is literally a virtual server. <laughs> That's what it's called. And why? Because remember, we talked about processes are really are really fast, and they're just sitting around most of the time. Well, if you have multiple people using the same processor, you can use that one processor much more efficiently. And this is a huge gain for everyone because you're spreading out the cost of that fixed processor over multiple people. You're also when you have all the processors together in one place, all the infrastructure around it, the cooling, the the the, the power, the electricity, the administration, you can reduce those costs in aggregate massively by having them sort of in one place. And it's good from an environmental perspective. Like why waste? Why have everybody have all this stuff just sitting around doing nothing when actually we could share all this? And But the problem is, is you have these processors that were built for individual users. Now tons of people are using the same one. And that's wh- sort of where the 
you know, you're right. No one anticipated that. Is it a bad thing that they didn't anticipate that? Are we going to, you know, it's it's unfortunate, but is it really like no one did anything bad here? Well, it wasn't bad. It's it's. I mean, this is one of the things that I have definitely learned from you over the 135 episodes. It's like the way to explain it is is to look at the incentives. And like there were folks inside these organizations that were super smart and they were focused on if we want this organization to be successful, we need to get this processor faster. And the processor has a specific user, a specific customer, and we're going to build that for, we're going to build exactly that. And it's not until you come along uh, 20 years later and uh, it's being used in ways that were were unimaginable that you realize oh hang on like if we were doing it again right now maybe we would make a different set of decisions but to go, to go back and and say to, to cast blame on them back then when they're in a very different situation is 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 meaningless it's like we we need to accept this and move on and figure out how to deal with it and it's funny how as you were describing the virtualization of the processes and and the advantages of doing it this way as opposed to having resources lying around and and uh, being wasted and uh, as opposed to being shared and therefore the efficiencies going up it's you know what came to my mind is self-driving cars again nesting at a completely different level and i bet you we end up with the same a similar set of problems there's going to be some security issue or something going on when we share the resources that we initially designed and we have this concept of as being individually owned we will deal with it. It doesn't mean it's not a good thing. But yeah, there are going to be problems that are unforeseen because we're taking something and kind of morphing it into something else. And I think on 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 aggregate, it's definitely going to be a better thing. But there will be unforeseen problems and we're just going to have to deal with them. There's an old adage in sort of computer security that if someone has physical access to your computer, you're already screwed. Mm. So because like – but what's fascinating – that's kind of like the core problem here is – you have to actually be on the same processor to exploit this bug. Uh, again, leaving aside the, the, the JavaScript issue, which I will, the, the JavaScript issue is the if there's a way to run code that exploits this via JavaScript in the browser. Uh, one of the many reasons why, uh, just <laughs> I'm not sure that was there's an example of where we got a ton of unforeseen mm. consequences. Um, I've actually changed my mind about ad blockers uh, thanks to this. Uh, that that's how. That's how bad I think it is. Um, mm. But the, the the broader point is, yeah, when you were, we were building these, everyone presumed, well, if you have physical access to the computer, is anyone going to really bother measuring cache times? Because if they already have access, there's way easier right. ways to to take advantage of it. But yeah, if you're up in the cloud, like when these processes were developed, this idea of of this sort of cloud computing was not in, in, in anyone's mind. So you asked a question earlier around, would we do it differently? And I feel like my answer was no. And I feel like there's a related question here, which is like, now we've discovered this bug, would we give up the future that we have where everybody's running on cloud computing? Is it that serious that we should like, oh, let's go back to the way things were? No, I I, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> this is the gains are so... Are, are so huge. And again, th- these gains are not just the like saving money sort of gains, right? It, it, when I mentioned this before in the, in the context of processors, like it's not just that we got more developers, it's that we freed up the resources and skills and abilities of, of the people who could actually do the deep, the deep dive sort of stuff to do other 
amazing things. And it's a similar sort of situation here. I mean, this I cloud computing has been transformative, not just because it saves like established companies money and they can move their data center from being co-located or on, or on, on premise and, and move it to, to Amazon, whatever it might be. The real gain is the fact that you can start a company now mm. with no with no money. Like I can set up – I guess I'm biased here if you think about it. Like I can set up something like Stratechery without having to buy a server and, and set it all up because why? Because I'm using, using a virtual private server. We talk about the future and what it's going to entail in this aspect where – these massive fixed cost sort of investments that would have been necessary for all these sorts of things are now sort of abstracted away and can be effectively rented. That unleashes and makes possible so many sort of more things. And you're right. This is always the case, though. It's always the case mm. where we always see bad things. And I think we our general posture is, oh, but there's also good things. There's been trade-offs here. But it's you can frame it the other way. I, I talk a lot about the benefits of this new world, and you kind of mentioned the context of self-driving cars. There's you can see these good things, and it's worth acknowledging. There's there's going to be bad things. This is a problem with cloud computing. The, the meltdown flaw is kind of the initial one, and there's a fix for it. But because it wasn't like designing the hardware, the fix has a performance cost for for some applications, and that's fine. We are now going to pay that price. We're going to literally pay the price of of dealing that performance issue. Spectre is going to be a little more hard to deal with. It's also much harder to exploit. But we're you know we're going to have to figure it out. But that's just the way it works. We we figure stuff out. Yes, theoretically, we could plan it perfectly that it wouldn't happen, but that never actually happens in the real world. And honestly, every attempt at planning everything has mm. turned into abject disaster throughout history. Like we, we don't need more examples of how dictating everything from the top is a better outcome than letting people just kind of muck around and figure it out. Mucking around and figure it out has changed the world in a tr- dramatically impactful way for the better. I mean, I went to this uh, on Twitter yesterday, but like, I mean, not to go sort of like all big picture on you, but it's so You'd easy to get stuck in. It's so easy to get stuck in like the, the new cycle and, and, and so many mm. stuff seems terrible and stuff's bad. But again, you back up and there are fewer people living in abject poverty than ever before. There are more people who, who are littered than ever before. Like every single index of the well-being of humanity is is better today than it has been at any point in human history. And that's not to belittle or minimize the the problematic things that may be going on. It's just worth remembering that we as a a species are pretty damn good at muddling through and figuring stuff out. And we're really bad at dictating from on high how we should progress. And, and it's that sort of idea of it's not that people are smart. It's that I've said this before. It's that people are people aren't smart. No one is smart enough to know everything. And the best thing we can do is let as many people figure stuff out as we can. And it's working. It's it, it, it's easy to forget, but it's working in society. It works with computers. It's worked with technology. And the more we can remember that and keep that in mind, the more we can sort of. Sorry, I I don't kind of rambling here, but this this so ties together stuff I feel in so so deeply about that to push forward it doesn't it's not useful one to go back and point fingers and say you screwed mm. this up. We it, one we can't change it, and two no one fig- thought about it at the time. But but three what decisions and policies we make today 
should be centered around not prescribing the future because we we just can't do it well. It should be creating the conditions so people yes. can, can keep figuring stuff out. And that's why I'm still pro-cloud computing because it creates the conditions yeah. for people to do new things. And are there costs? There are. There's costs with everything. But I'd rather place my bet on that side than the other. I, I think that is spot on. I think that's like one of the big learning. Another one of the big learnings for me of uh, of doing this over these past few years with you is is trying to prescribe from a policy level like winners and losers or the right way to do things is is inevitable is is inevitably going to fail. It's much more important to think about how you can set up the context for people to go off and do do things that are great and and nudge them in that direction. That's a much better way of approaching things. And and similarly, like trying to create policy directions that wind us back to things that are things in the past because there are elements of the past that we like is often futile because those things were the way they were because of the point in time we were at and and all the other infrastructure and developments and understanding and the paradigm at the time and there were great things about it and it's easy to look back in hindsight and see all those things and there were things that weren't so good about it and sometimes those things were hidden from broad view and it makes it seem even rosier in the past but to try and wind back to the way things were is oftentimes a it's just going to be futile you'd like just acknowledge the fact that's how it was and it's not like that anymore this is the reality of the situation and we're going to try and do the most to unleash as as much of creativity and as uh, as uh, creativity of the human spirit going forward so as many people can contribute so as many of these wild and crazy ideas whether startup or otherwise that we couldn't have imagined come into the world that's exactly it. And 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 then you deal with the consequences when they happen. And I think right. you know this like this is the idea of like a safety net for example is mm. there will be bad consequences but let's deal with that when 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 they happen. Let's to try to preempt bad consequences. You end up preempting good consequences as as well. And you know and this is the concern such that there is with you know with the sort of like big platforms for example you know it's so easy to reach out and say oh facebook should fix stuff youtube should fix stuff all these sorts of things but if you back up the issue is if you're depending on a single entity to mm. take care of everything it's not just that that single entity might end up doing bad things it's that any no single entity whether it be a person whether it be a company whether it be whatever it might be can anticipate everything that might happen. And that anticipation is not just bad things that might happen, but good things that might happen. And, and the, the, like at, at a very core level, it's not just that these companies are big and powerful. It's that what stuff isn't happening because they're foreclosing so many other things like this. Mm. And this is, you know, this idea of, I, I, I don't know, it's just so important. So many things in our world are moving towards sort of inherent technology and the internet is sort of the centralization and, and control. And it's, worth it and important and i will continue to push back in that other direction and and the temptation is to adopt that power say oh look at all that power over there if i could leverage that power to accomplish my policy goals that'd be a wonderful thing but but that's i think is a mistake because that's the issue is not how the power is wielded it's the power in the first place And, and and what's more important is the possibility and is there possibility being foreclosed and what can we do mm. to unlock possibility such that stuff can happen that none of us would have anticipated 
Yeah, you know what? It's again reminding me of of an idea in a very different field, but it's it's related, and it's it's the I think it's a misattributed quote to Darwin around evolutionary biology that it's rarely the the strongest or the smartest that survive, but it's the one that's most that's most able to adapt. And that notion, in terms of like a, a almost like a a policy approach around like enabling as many adaptations as possible as many different rolls of the dice that that's the way we should be approaching it as opposed to trying to find the one thing that is the best because what's the best is very contingent on the environment at the time and as the environment continues to change and change and change like that's going to change and our ability to predict the future and how that's going to work out is inevitably very very poor. Yeah, it's exactly right, and I, I mean, I kind of ne- mentioned this in a in a at the end of the article that I didn't do my usual, you know, state of technology in in twenty seventeen. I've done that the the past previous years, mainly because the Disney Fox deal came out, and mm-hmm. and I was writing about that. But it, like, I, I love this bug as as sort of like a, a self contained analogy for for where mm. we're at. Like, we spent last year talking about all these problems the 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 problems with Facebook, the problems with YouTube, the you know the impact that that's had on on society and. You know that's very much where we're at. I think in technology is we're now dealing with sort of unintended consequences and and effects. And you know, you if you were to go back, and I just when you were counseling against that, if you go back, you would say, oh, all those cheerleaders for technology. Oh, look at you, you rah rah rah, and all this bad stuff happened. It's like, yeah, that's a that's a fair criticism. But on on the flip side, the, the criticism goes both ways. Just to point out all the bad things and to ignore the good things is it's not productive, and it it. it it leads to a mindset that doesn't push us forward broadly. The last thing we need, like <laughs> we're in this massive transition inspired by mm-hmm. the internet and th- that's, it's done. Like it, the transition is going to happen whether we want it to or not. The only question is where we're going to be at the end of that transition. And, and so I, I feel like I repeat myself on this point again and again and again, but it, to me, it's like, it's one of those points I feel so deeply that I just want everybody to get like we have to be planning for where we want to end up and and how we're going to get there not sort of like one try to go backwards mm. and, and two pretend that any one of us knows enough to define where that point ought to be yeah I I, I mean I I love I, I I love finding connections between similar, uh, very disparate things, and I love examples of nesting where you see the same problem just at a much smaller or a much larger level. And uh, it, it's it, it, you see it when theory works well, like whether uh, whether it's a, a culture working inside a family, inside a team, inside of an organization, or whether it's it's something like that working in a very different context. And this was so fun for me reading. This because you managed to find an example of a problem that we've been talking about, whether it be at a societal or at a company level. But instead of operating at that level, we've zoomed all the way down inside the processor, sitting inside behind the screen on the phone or underneath the keyboard of the laptop that you're listening to this on. And it's it's kind of crazy that you see these patterns emerge time and time again. And being able to discuss it in that allows you to see things. It's the same problem, just in a different context. And sometimes taking it out of context like that allows us to see it and understand it better and then approach the problem elsewhere and come up with solutions or or have a different insight on the problem elsewhere that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to get to. 
Yes, so I think I now have my 30-second summary of, of this bug. Let's do it. People made justifiable decisions based on the conditions of the time that had unintended consequences that are only being realized today. I feel like that was less than 30 seconds, and you basically just sum- <laughs> you just summed up 136 episodes of Exponent at the same time. There you go. I mean, that's it. That, that, that is the theme. Like, that's what we're dealing with. And, and that's fine. We'll, we'll figure it out. We'll muddle through. We, 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 we always have. We continue to do so. And, and that's fine. I know you have a stand, and you were, you were a little bit annoyed with me because I'm traveling, and I forgot my mic stand. And um, I've been waving the – I've been moving the microphone, and it creates noise. But if it wasn't for the fact that your mic was in a stand and clamped in right now, I'd be like, Ben, why don't you drop the mic? I feel like this is an appropriate point <laughs> you, to you, do it. You, you, you want to drop it on my behalf? Yeah, here we go. The first, the first hope, mic hope, drop on Exponent. Welcome I to hope, 2018. I, I hope your mic's okay. Yeah, I, I'm still here. <laughs> Sounds good. Our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. Again, go to WordPress.com slash Exponent to get 15% off your order. And uh, I will talk to you next time you are in America. Sounds good. It's good to, good to be back and Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. I will talk to you later. See you, mate. Right, bye-bye.